0: Hi there. As you'll hear in my conversation with Lydia Millet, one of the features of my winter landscape has been vultures. In fact, as I'm recording this, I can see two occupying the twin spots on a neighbor's chimney and others soaring around in circles. The reason I bring these to your attention is that these are among the creatures to whom Lydia Millet refers in the title of her novel that we discuss, Dinosaurs. Before you start this episode, I encourage you just to take a moment to notice if there are birds in the vicinity where you are. One of the things that her novel does is to really bring our attention to the ways that birds invite us into the natural world in which we are enmeshed, take us out of ourselves. Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. Dinosaur's Lydia Millett's latest novel is the story of a man named Gil, who leaves Manhattan and moves to Arizona after a failed relationship. Because he wants to feel like the move is earned, he decides to travel to Arizona on foot. This desire he has to earn things comes from the fact that he has no need to make a living. We discover that as a child, Gil lost both of his parents in a car accident, and when he came of age, he inherited a trust fund. When he moves to Arizona, he buys a house in a wealthy enclave, sight unseen. And when he arrives, he discovers that the house next door is a kind of human aquarium, covered with glass on the side that faces his house. He's uncomfortable with this voyeurism that is foisted upon him, but In spite of this, or because of it, he ends up developing a relationship with the family that lives next door, the couple and their two children. And over the course of the novel, he begins to forge other ties to his new home, including with the local birds, of whom he becomes an ardent defender. So we we were going to talk about your novel, Dinosaurs. That title inevitably feels like a a charged title, (laughs) particularly for somebody who writes about climate. But what's interesting, I mean, with so many things in this book, you're doing kind of multiple things at once. But what's interesting is that within the context of the story, the dinosaurs refer explicitly to birds. It comes up at one point that birds are descendants of dinosaurs. So to me, it felt like that title was almost a kind of balancing act between extinction and survival. You know, it sort of points in different directions. But I'm curious, what inspired you to choose that particular title?
1: Well, it was the multiple layers of the title and also the charisma of that word and what it evinces for us. It always kind of makes me think of childhood, even though I wasn't particularly dinosaur-obsessed myself. In fact, neither of my children were were obsessed. I mean, my son played with polyvinyl chloride dinosaurs more than my daughter did (laughs) when he was little, but still not, you know, he wasn't fixated on them, but in general, they conjure childhood for me and toys. And they also, of course, have all these other reverberations. Creatures that still exist in our lives and still loom fairly large in our imagination for something we've never known in real time right something so they've become these these cultural monuments and only exist anymore in a form we didn't even recognize as belonging to their lineage until really recently yeah and yet these almost domesticated seeming although of course Wild birds are not domesticated, but these almost domesticated seeming descendants of some of the dinosaurs are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I say like domesticated seeming just by comparison to these quasi mythical and often massive lumbering creatures or ferocious creatures, you know, that we reconstruct from prehistoric times. So it almost looks like they're. Evolution parallels our own in in some ways. I don't mean not here speaking of a future extinction, but of the way that we too have become perhaps not physically smaller, I guess, but perhaps less ferocious certainly less wild as creatures ourselves over the past you know 200,000 years since we discovered fire and <laughs> you know and and similarly the birds that once were dinosaurs seem sometimes less threatening and and more tame the way they occupy spaces especially in our neighborhoods and sort of quasi suburban or exurban quasi urban areas and even and even in cities you know we they can be these everyday sort of creatures that are sometimes mundane seeming shadow of the great beasts who once roamed.
0: I like that very much. I mean, birds are so fascinating that way, because like you say, they are our fellow travelers. They're amongst us, and yet we're not necessarily always tuned into them. In my neighborhood right now, we have a ton of turkey vultures and I I still don't quite understand what it is, but for some reason around Thanksgiving every year they arrive and Hmm. they will settle. There will be 40 or 50 of them in a tree in this one neighborhood. And Hmm. they just, it seems to be a seasonal thing for some reason.
1: Are there more, is there more like, you know, Carrion (laughs) garbage available? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm just like, you know, (laughs) could they be like raccoons or, you know, where they sort of, they sort of find your Thanksgiving garbage or
0: something? (laughs) So there's a neighborhood near me that's a little bit elevated. So they seem to like these trees that give them a nice viewpoint. But what's so striking about them Mm. is how many there are. Like I went out this morning and they were really filling the sky. And so I guess, you know, to bring it back, what you were saying, what strikes me about that is how alien birds can seem in a moment. And also, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, sort of refer back to that, distant kind of mythical past and yet they're more accessible than a lot of other animals that we might not see so often yeah so.
1: they're very yeah they really are they run the gamut from urban creatures that people you know insult us as, as flying rats to really exotic beautiful fairy-like creatures right and i mean i certainly when i say that they seem Tame or something. I'm referring to a subset of birds. Obviously, like I wouldn't want to encounter, you know, a shoe bill or something in my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's some birds that would really, really intimidate me. Even though I would kind of love to encounter one in a certain (laughs) way. Um, You know, so of course I'm not implying anything anti biological there. But even you know the way that so many birds, even wild birds, like the ones in my garden after which the ones in dinosaurs were patterned because all of those exist around here. They're fully wild, but they also are acclimated to some degree. And of course, well, accept the seeds we offer them.
0: Oh yeah. That's interesting. So, so in the book, each chapter is named after a bird. Interestingly, the first chapter is called morning and you don't know until a little way into the chapter that you're referring to a morning dove. So I'm curious, at what stage in the writing process did you decide to structure it that way?
1: Yeah, fairly early. And it was the early title of it before dinosaurs was Men of Birds. Mm. (laughs) So it was always sort of structured that way. Then I decided that Men of Birds would not sufficiently entice potential readers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, it sounded very meek. and, uh, And there was this meekness, you know, there was this gentleness to the book. But I couldn't resist. Because I was thinking of dinosaurs and the roles they sort of play in our in imagination, you know, I couldn't resist just co opting them. Yeah. But even though I always kind of feel like one word titles are sort of a cop out. you know? Really? <laughs> like, Why? Um, well, you're just, you're not doing anything to the word. You know, you're just like snatching it right from the dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not, I don't know, it seems rude almost like I'm going to claim that word for my book. And myself <laughs> like to label it entirely whereas at least if you put a few together you have you know you can have hopes that that particular permutation has not been offered before <laughs> anyway yeah but i do i also do it is also of course fine and good i just felt a little like it was shooting fish in a barrel to to have the word dinosaurs be, <laughs> be the Too title. Too easy. Because it's such a great <laughs> word, right? Yeah, it's just such a great word and everyone should be able to use it for their, whatever they need yeah. made.
0: Well, you string a few words together in your book, so I think you get a pass.
1: <laughs> I do. The words string some together.
0: <laughs> yeah, the book strings
1: words. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and the birds tell us a lot about the main character as well, right? Because first yeah. of all, he makes this move, which I gather you made at some point in your life, right? From New York to Arizona. It was. That I where, you, how you landed in Arizona from New York? I did not walk. You did not first. walk. <laughs> <And> I,
1: <laughs> Fair enough. And yeah, but I did, well, I sort of, I had a more roundabout way of ending up here, which was that I, I briefly went to grad school here right out of college. And then I dropped out after one semester, but I loved the desert so much that later I came back and I came back from New York from the West Village, which is not so far from the location I gave to Gil in this book. And then- I did not come to, you know, Scottsdale or, you know, any kind of wealthy enclave. I came to a pretty, especially at the time, like just small ramshackle built with army surplus plywood kind of house Mm. (laughs) in this Wildcat subdivision without a paved road or anything like that. Definitely not the glass house and the castle um, that Gil and his fellow characters have. But yeah, but it was going from New York to Arizona.
0: Well, a couple of ways in which birds are are important to the character. One is that I feel like the birds draw him into the space, and that's something I feel like we can all relate to, the way in which he starts to connect with this new landscape that he's bewitched by, but which is new to him, when he starts walking and starts encountering the birds and becoming aware of them in a way that he hadn't been living in the city, even though there are birds in the city, obviously. And then, of course, he becomes sort of an eco-warrior on behalf of the birds when he discovers that somebody is hunting them illegally and buys all this night gear and decides that he's going to try and find out who's... So anyway, so I'm not sure what my question is. is, It just in terms of the way in which you felt that the birds were kind of a conduit for your main character.
1: Yeah, essentially, he becomes sort of... Their defender and he is also kind of learning to defend himself in the course of that. I think there's a way in in which she identifies with the birds and also finds them to be alien in the way that you described earlier. Because they are that way there. They can be I mean, of course you could say this of any, I suppose you could say it of almost any animal who isn't, you know, a pet or something, but they can seem just beautiful and unthreatening and almost, well, it's probably an improper use of the word, but almost pastoral, almost sort of like elements of a landscape, almost like scenic decorations or something. It's how birds can seem to us sometimes. And really, we use them that way. We use their images that way, right? As decorative, like motifs very, very often. But then they can go from that sort of mildness and meekness to actually seeming threatening or ominous or dark or ferocious like in in the Hitchcock movie or or many myths right I think the power of their flight and the sharpness of their beaks like the aptitudes of birds and their morphology all sort of lend themselves to kind of an angel monster dichotomy mm. <laughs> that they seem to embody yeah you know so Gill, I think is learning to defend like himself, he's learning to have a community that he feels he can defend or stand up for. And the birds maybe sort of lead the way in, into that new belonging.
0: Yeah, sometimes I, another role I feel like they play for him is sort of presenting different modes of being because he catalogs or he pays attention to some of their unusual features. You know, I remember there's a passage about hummingbirds, mm-hmm. for instance, and there's a sort of speculation about how. Scientists think that hummingbirds maybe have these prodigious memories, and he wonders, like, how on earth mm-hmm. would they even know that, right? But their sort of accessibility, but also like the fact that they operate in these ways that are completely different to us. So it seems to me to kind of suggest to him, oh, maybe there are different ways of being in the world because there's definitely a self-discovery, yeah. you know, this sort of exploratory aspect of what he's going through,
1: right? And it is very much like also a a discovery of the the others and the sort of like the the lure and the joys of otherness you know um i do i do think birds are kind of they're kind of a great microcosm for the rest of the natural world because they seem to be unveiling to us over time uh, so much that is extraordinary and that you would never suspect could occur with these really quite small brains and Light bodies that they have, like hummingbirds, possibly having these episodic memories and really intricate geological spatial maps uh, that they navigate by, and these long migrations, these long solo migrations that I think are mentioned in Gill's prose. But also, you know, more and more we discover sort of the perfection of the avian anatomy as people learn more and more about birds. You know, for for those kinds of migrations. The birds that are the, you know, the longest migrators, their body completely morphs to make that migration. It changes on this like profound level. Sometimes they drop half their body weight, their bones change, you know, and then that all changes back. It's incredible. When the migration is over. Yeah, it is incredible. It is incredible. Like they just are, the more we, and then the, of course the intelligence of corvids, right? right. And parrots and there's just the more we learn about them I think the more extraordinary they're revealed to be and I think that's true of so much that we don't know in the natural world and it's also what makes it so exciting and necessary to have that which we don't know be existent in the world so that we can have that like suspense and excitement and joy of discovery and always sort of in the offing for us as critters ourselves yeah, absolutely so
0: uh, listening to you it makes me think of a couple of things i kind of want to try and put a couple of threads together one is i'm thinking about your work do you still work for the center for biological diversity are you still doing that kind? Of, yeah yeah
1: Yep. Yeah, i work yep i'm uh 30 hours a week so i can't as an FTE. that's
0: great that's that's really terrific You know, one of the things that one is often thinking about is how to get people to care. And so as a writer, I think that one of your tasks also is a a task of imagination, right? And so when we learn these things about other animals who have these capacities that are completely different than our own, that are surpass our own capacities in certain areas dramatically. But I I feel like in order to value that, we have to we have to engage in an active imagination and mm-hmm. and and then that in turn touches on question of value to me and i want to develop this a little bit more because it's one of the interesting things about this book to me is i feel like there's a real reflection on what is it that we value you know what what is it that that really matters to us so perhaps you could speak first to this problem of you know how do we get people to care about other animals that have different traits, different abilities from our own. And I wonder if you have thought about that, both in terms of your environmental work and also in terms of your work as a writer.
1: Well, I think that most people in the first place, certainly most children, but but even even most people who have a chance to think about it or to live adjacent to anything natural, um, most people have an innate love. For other creatures, I mean, mm. I think that is part of who we are. They may or may not either be able or see fit to reckon with that affection or acknowledge it in in the lives that they lead. But I, I think it's for most people lying there as surely as as love for for other people is. And I and I think we we actually we take it for granted. We take the natural world so for granted because we've. Co-evolved with it. We've co-evolved with this like abundance of life. And we really don't know any other way of being. And so we haven't had to project um, in our imaginations scenarios in which other life is absent from our world and our communities. You know? Now we are increasingly making those projections when we think about other forms of life and and the patches of nature that we have access to and the large expanses that we'd like to rely on in our minds you know we like to we like to take for granted the idea that there are vast forests out there whether or not we see them right but more and more we're having to try to think what it would be like to be more alone and it's kind of difficult. And I think that's part of the problem is that we're so other creatures may be to us sometimes invisible or understated, but they are so wired into our neural circuitry and, and our deep time memories and our ways of being with other people, you know, our culture, our language, our music, all of that is so deeply steeped in animals and animalness. Mm -hmm that we can't even parse it often. So that's, yeah, that's part of the difficulty of all this is really maybe a difficulty of recognition or memory to make explicit what is implicit mm. already, to to articulate what is unconscious or semi-conscious, you know?
0: So you think, in a sense, we can't grasp the idea that we're losing these relationships because it's so baked into who we are that it's almost like we can't imagine it.
1: Yes. Hmm. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think we have moments, and some of us, more than others, and a lot of that depends on the way that our life is structured and where we are. You know, of course, there are all sorts of things that feed into our sort of ontologies. But I think that for all of us, this profound and meshed history with trees and plants and animals, all of whom keep us alive, you know, all of whom we would be dead without this profound history of co-evolution is sort of buried for many of us. And especially as we've become More urban and become these box dwellers that we are now, you know, who live in boxes, who walk on pavement. It's easier for us to forget and deny. It's also easy, you know, for us to appreciate and be delighted when we do encounter something, a a creature that we don't always see. But nonetheless, there's this whole World that we've pushed away and decided somehow that we're not dependent on, in part of our minds, anyway, right? Somehow that nature is outside and we're not part of it, you know? And that's obviously a sort of foundation myth of (laughs) like post industrial Western culture that we're somehow not of the rest of the animal world, we're exceptional. But I think the task for artists trying to suggest to culture that this recognition is important, the recognition of our animalness, of our kinship with the others, of our entire dependence on them, all that is, is a difficult project because really of the love itself, the the depth of it makes it hard for us to access on the surface, on the surfaces of ourselves.
0: I think what's striking about your books is that you connect the love that we have for animals with the love that we have for humans, who we ourselves are of course animals. I don't know if that's something that you're conscious of or that you would recognize in yourself, but at least that's the way that I experience your book is that that they're not mm-hmm. separate spheres. there's a real continuity Mm-mm. between the
1: two. Does that sound right to you? Oh, I think so. I mean, I absolutely do think so. I don't even know. I mean, the difference is that we can't talk to animals, other animals, or we rarely can. It's not true that we can't at all. We have established some lexicons with some other very select few animals. But in general, we have language to mediate among people, and we don't have at least the same language or any sort of codified language to mediate between us and the beasts and the green things, but that doesn't mean we can't love them profoundly. It just means we love them a bit differently. And we have to accept that part of what we love is their otherness. But I don't think that's so different with people, right? Like what you're loving in someone else is not just a reflection of yourself.
0: No, I mean, you know, it's like sex, right? (laughs) It's not just all about verbal communication. And I think with animals, sometimes you know, part of what we love about them is the fact that they don't talk back to us, you know, with uh, thinking of pets in particular, we have a dog and I have two teenage kids and they have these daily moments of connection with her. And, and it feels like, you know, part of it is the fact that it's a different form of communication and sometimes even a preferable (laughs) form of communication to the kind that they have to deal with, with other humans, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I remember like thinking so I have two I guess my kids are both teenagers now, that my daughter almost is almost is twenty, but um I remember thinking when she and her brother were pre verbal, when they were infants, you know, you still felt you could communicate mm-hmm. with them. It just was not a communication that you could synopsize and package for external consumption, you know? And it's like that with pets, I think, that when we love them. I don't think it's as simple or simplistic as that they're affirming us either.
0: No, you know? no, not at all. Yeah. In fact, they're often not.
1: <laughs> right, right. They might not be. Exactly.
0: I, I want to go yeah. back to this question of value because um, I feel like that's one of the things that Gil is wrestling with in the book and that we kind of wrestle with alongside him. So he One of the things that's interesting about his story is that he doesn't need to earn a living because he's inherited this fortune. And so it it creates these interesting scenarios. So for instance, his ex-girlfriend Lane doesn't respect him because although he does work as a volunteer, he's not earning any money. So from her perspective, that kind of invalidates the work. Uh, And at one point you write, she measured success by career the way most people did which I feel like is increasingly so much of value in in our culture. And so there there are different little threads like that in the book. For instance, there's the Homeowners Association and the competitions that they have. There's Gil's desire to earn his move from New York to Arizona, which he does by walking as Mm -hmm. opposed to taking the plane. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was wondering, you know, what was at work for you in those kinds of articulations of what is value? Does value come from money? Does it come from labor? Does it come from care? There are all these sort of different economies of value, I feel like, in the book.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the world, and it is really, you know, I was just talking to my daughter about this the other day, that it's not the case that sort of the merits of labor determine the value of that labor, right? So we know that's not the case. Right. <laughs> so sometimes it's just, as the economists say, willingness to pay, right? What people are willing to pay for a service or commodity, and therefore what those who own the means of production are are willing to pay employees to generate whatever that is. But there's also this longstanding false or I don't know false is a little strong but this this habit that we've had of assigning value to labor based on actually who's doing the labor mm-hmm. right so that so that if men are doing the labor we have tended to assign it monetary value and if women are doing the labor say it's domestic labor or keeping children alive or creating children you know <laughs> then it's <laughs> very hard work and also really crucial to the mm-hmm. economy right because if you don't have babies, you won't have wage slaves, and then you won't have commodities and you won't have profits. So even though women have done this work, in most places still in the world, it's it's not remunerated. And indeed, it's often when men do a certain job rather than women that it it is assigned value, monetary value. So sometimes it's not about what the product is at all, but who's who's doing the labor that even determines whether it's defined as labor and given assigned a value so in the case of gill and lane it's that you know he doesn't have status because he's not generating capital he's not generating revenue and he also doesn't have a title and so he becomes almost like a woman in a traditional role would and becomes invisible in the economy in her eyes
0: yeah he's almost kind of emasculated right it factors so much into their relationship that she's got this glamorous job which you do a good job of sort of mocking as well right because she works for (laughs) she works for is it a publishing house that sells high-end outdoor activities Oh, here. I, I Actually, I have it. It says, she's the senior editor at a glossy magazine owned by a media conglomerate. And the line that I loved was, it sells the outdoors. And then he, it modifies that. Or outdoor activities, anyway, rock climbing, adventures, triathlons, Everest expeditions, extreme sports, and high-end sporting gear. It's kind of hilarious, right? I mean, we're all very familiar with that, you know, monetizing of the outdoors and... and you
1: know, packaging it, everything that's involved with that. Yeah. Yeah. So that she's, she's involved in that sort of process of commodifying stuff and, and Gil's just not, and it is really more like, you know, I think of, for example, my mother in the seventies, even though she's highly educated and highly intelligent and all this, decided to stay home and raise her kids. And she did all this volunteer work, but you know, it was never taken seriously as like no one ever said she works 30 hours a week for La Leche League or whatever and and so many other women have been and continue to be in that position and in all really in at many different socioeconomic levels right where it can just be that you're the one in your household who does all the cooking and raises the children and that's the form of your quote volunteer work right it's actually It's a necessary work, but no value is assigned to it, except the value of obligation, right? It's like a gender mandate sort of. Yeah.
0: No, I feel like that that devaluing of things that don't translate into a certain narrative of career and success has become more acute rather than less so, which is just interesting in Mm -hmm. an age where women are making strides in a lot of ways, but it's like that that gender dichotomy persists, even though it may not, you know, it could apply to men and and to women. But yeah, I feel like in the book, the sort of counterbalance to this economy of earning money and of careerism is a kind of, I don't know. Economy is probably not the right word, but is a value of care. And so Gil is very much a caretaker. So he volunteers for this women's shelter when he's in Arizona, but he also, essentially volunteers for his neighbors whom he comes to love and uh, helps take care of their children. And then the woman he ends up connecting with is a trauma surgeon. So she also is involved in this kind of, I guess, more high powered <laughs> version of care. But to to me, that was, again, a, a really important part of the book was this value of care. And I was wondering if if you thought about that also in terms of the environmental issues that thread through the book, whether that sort of caretaking was something that you were thinking about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, there are sort of multiple functions of a lot of, a lot of the aspects of the book, like the birds or the title or Gil's wealth, you know, and the sort of meditations on responsibility that come with that. So, yeah, I think, I don't know. The older I've gotten, I I do remember being some fifty. I just turned fifty five, I guess. And I remember when I was like young, maybe even into my early thirties or something. Really, still placing value. I remember sort of thinking of people in terms of what they did. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't lie. Like I, I. It was always like, "What do you do? You know, what do you what do you do?" That's a, and that is kind of an American greeting, you know, it's a, it's a, like an American way of, of getting to know American meaning like mainstream American culture. However you define that it gets a bit tricky, but it is like, if you go to Europe and let's say you go to England and you meet people, it's not the first thing out of their mouth when they shake your hand and that's the English. And they're fairly, you know, close to us culturally, but they will not be like, Oh, so what's your job? Like that's considered, right. Crazy, you know? <laughs> but we, that's just our that's our conversation starter, you know and and I do it, I do it, but the the older I get, the more impressed I am by people who take care of of the others, not just children or the sick or the dying, but the rest of the world around them, their gardens and the animals. yeah, I just come to be so unimpressed by people who have the kind of jobs that that tend to be called impressive, you know, in our culture. So I don't know, maybe that's just a normal kind of evolution of a person getting middle-aged i <laughs> like I'm, I'm certainly not impressed by like someone being a hedge fund manager or something.
0: I don't know if that's a normal evolution. I mean, I think it would be good <laughs> if it
1: were, but I'm not I sure. Know. I mean, you, you sort of, you, Um, Don't you feel don't you think it is for you? Yeah, it is for me. It's something that my
0: husband and I talk about, actually. I mean, and also just because I feel like and I don't know whether I'm more attuned to it, but I feel like there's just this barrage of, you know, podcasts about people's success. Every like narratives are so often framed that way. I feel like in, in some version of popular culture, right, in terms of. Yes. Success. I mean, even if even failures have to be somehow cashed out as part of the road to success, you know what I mean? And, and Mm -hmm. there's, and there's so much that is wrapped up in that such an ideology that's at work there that seems very fraught (laughs) to me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) particularly in light of what's happening to our world more broadly.
1: Yeah. I can't, sometimes can't believe how recently I held these opinions. Mm. Sometimes looking back, like I'm kind of astonished at my own slowness to learn certain things in the world. You know, I don't know. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. It all seems so fast in a way. Like life, just it does seem to pass so quickly. So maybe it's even though we know that compared to lots of organisms, we have a you know this long adolescence and a lot of time to develop really. It still seems fast always. And and yet, I don't know, sometimes it takes so long to cultivate awareness of something. And you, it often can't be deliberate. It's as though you can't deliberately understand something. It just has to happen to you by accident.
0: I think some things just have to be lived, right? It's like the process yeah. of caring for children. I mean, it sounds like your kids are maybe a tiny bit older than mine, but sort of similar age. And I think about that with parenting. I, I feel like you have to have a certain number of years in the bank to even begin to understand <laughs> what it requires. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm sure parents of older children feel that way even more. And so, you know, I think there are so many things in life that are not about knowing in an intellectual way, but, you know, have to be experienced to really
1: be appreciated. You certainly have to feel them. You certainly have to feel them and not just think yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So going back a little bit, I I just wanted to touch on the fact that Gil's money comes from oil barons. That can't be accidental. And I was wondering if it's fair to think of that uh, as kind of representative (laughs) of America's legacy more broadly, or am I reading
1: too much into it? I mean, sure. But the fact is, you know, like when I was, I was sort of, you know, when I was writing the book and I was playing with just some of the details, just as I wrote things, you know, I don't plan stuff, but just sort of deciding in a sentence how to do things. And I thought, well, is that too, you know, symmetrical and pat, but the truth is that there's almost nowhere good your money can come from. <laughs> I mean, wealth, extreme wealth, just it does not come from being Mother Teresa, ever. No. You know, <laughs> like um, my family doesn't have extreme wealth, but what we do have in the way of money on my mother's side all comes from a pecan farm, right? And I talk about this in the next book that uh, is coming out of mine, which is like nonfiction, which comes out in April. I can't remember if I mentioned this to you or not, but it is like has bits of my own life in it. And and the truth is that the pecan farm. And to some degree before that, the peach farm that we had before we changed to pecan trees, you know, the the, the amount of truly horrifying pesticides that we dump onto our orchards means that even that money, that farming money that we make from feeding people is really dirty. You know, and there's just, (laughs) it's dirty money. There's very little money that isn't. So I figured, yeah, why wouldn't it be like a, timber baron or an oil. Baron. Yeah, it's true. Might as well. I mean, just
0: statistically, it seems pretty likely.
1: <laughs> anyway, right. So. There's a lot of yeah, a lot of people have made money in those lines of work. Exactly. Yeah,
0: that's a good point.
1: And actually, the one friend I have who really is from that kind of background, who's a lovely person like Gil, it's natural gas, actually, in the case of her family. So yeah,
0: yeah. well, I mean, you know, and it's not like, there's any reason for those people to feel guilty? I mean, we're all participating in, in human history in, in this big project, right? The question really is what we're going to do right, right now.
1: That's the question now, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of our, our sins, as it were, <laughs>
1: there, there's, mm-hmm.
0: um, there are pieces in the book that have to do with mistakes that we make with human failings. And in particular, I'm thinking about there are two incidents of infidelity, pretty different ones. And then there's also the drunk driver who kills Gil's parents. I feel like you have this compassion for human failings, which kind of points to the real threats that we're dealing with right now. But that is also potentially a source of strength in the sense that, you know, you have a character like Gil who is able to kind of move out of these Personal trauma, right, and move towards Mm -hmm. greater care and greater investment. And so, I guess for me, it feels like, in a way, you're sort of pointing towards the reader and asking, in a way, like, okay, well, what do we do? What what do we do with our failings, and what do
1: we do with our mistake, and where do we head with this? Thank you. That's a great. No one's really said that to me. No, that's great. That's that's a great way of seeing it. I, I thank you for it. I mean, I think that our fears, you know, our fears about the future and about our children and their fates and about the other critters that we share the world with, all our fear around that and grief around that, all of that is the thing that could save us, you know, our very, our very weakness, the qualities we have of being animal that the fact of our subjectivity you know is really the only thing that we have to fight with and i think that if something will redeem us (laughs) before the rest of the natural world then that is what will redeem us because it will be the lever that we use to try to redress some of some of where we've gone wrong.
0: I think that's really beautiful, I have to say. And I, I almost want to end on that, although I have plenty of other questions I could ask you. Um, <laughs> I, do you have uh, any recommendations for my listeners of of things to do?
1: To do? You know, things to well, do. To, things to do for the sake of the other critters and the climate and our own types of critters going forward. I think our first of all that people need to and this is so this is boring, but they they have to participate in civic life, you know, they have to vote, maybe run for office as I imagine maybe you have. They have to really pressure governments to act for the long term and for the good of everyone and everything and not submit to the selfishness of, of power, you know, in the short term, because it won't end well. <laughs> so that's, that's always the first thing is like vote and choose politicians who have a long view and agree that science matters and that policy should align with the best science that we have, the best knowledge we have of the natural world and our own natures, you know, that's always the first thing, because, you know, we can recycle as much as we want. But ultimately, it's just a drop in the ocean. So really, action, 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 Absolutely, you know, we have to act. And also, that's the only thing that really will sustain us in the end, and will give us hope is to actually act.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. Thank you for that. Um, can you tell me just a little bit about your book that's coming out in the
1: spring? Yes, yes, sure. It's, it's a curious book. It's kind of, I'm very frightened for it to come out because it seems like it's naked, you know, because <laughs> I've always just had books of fiction, even though I've written a fair amount of things that aren't fictional in short forms and formats. But this is the first book I've written that purports to be true. You know <laughs> so it's kind of some version of um someone called it an anti memoir or something who is giving it a compliment to help sell it on the back of the book and I think that's actually kind of a good term which has been used in the past for certain books that might have some elements of memoir but really aren't books about the person writing them and so uh it's really a book about the things that I'm concerned with and that you're concerned with It's about. Our love for the others and for the natural world, for our kids, it's kind of it's kind of about being a parent in the time of mass extinction mm-hmm. and, and climate crisis, and sort of what that is, and also being someone's child during that time, both a parent and a child, and just a person. It's about being a person and a mammal, <laughs> among other animals. It's about acknowledging our animalness and that we are fortunate to be animals, you know. I sort of use myself as a character in it. So it has some scenes from my life, but it also has scenes from the lives of animals, other animals, and passages about religion. And it's sort of preoccupied with story and the power of language to determine the future of the natural world and ourselves. So that's the sort of overarching thing of it. It's like, how can we tell different stories and have different kinds of heroes? Mm. Oh, I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you. Uh, um, it's called We Loved It. All.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lydia Millet. As you might be able to tell, I really had a good time. It's always such a pleasure to talk to her. And if you haven't read Dinosaurs yet, I strongly recommend that you do. In our next episode, we're going to pick up the thread of horses with an episode on equine therapy and an interview with the staff at a wonderful place called Green Chimneys, so something to look forward to.